Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Vox Tablet, the weekly podcast of Tablet Magazine. I'm Sarah Ivry. Today, what it's like to grow up Jewish in Germany. Yasha Munk is 31 years old and divides his time between New York and Cambridge, Massachusetts. But he grew up in Germany, a place he would have liked to consider home were it not for the exceptional treatment he got there. You see, Yasha is Jewish, and though that was never a big part of how his family raised him, he didn't have a bris, he didn't have a bar mitzvah, it did make him an object of derision or fascination for the people around him who knew about it. In a new book called Stranger in My Own Country, Monk uses his own experiences as a starting point to examine how Germans have processed or maybe failed to process their role in the Holocaust and their feelings about Jews, and the extent to which all of that continues to affect German society and politics. Monk is with us today in the studio to talk about the book. Yasha Monk, welcome to Vox Tablet. Hi, thanks for having me. Yasha, you came from a very sparse family, which, as you write in the book, might have clued you into the fact that there was something unusual about you, but seemed completely normal to you growing up. Tell us a little bit about who makes up that family and how you ended up in Germany. Uh, yeah, so um, my grandparents were born in shtetls in, in Eastern Europe, in you know what's today the Ukraine. Um, their parents uh, were religious and, and quite traditional. Um, but they, as teenagers, uh, became communists and they moved away from the shtetl to towns in uh, Poland um, to sort of fight for a communist future. And so when the Second World War broke out, uh, they left for the Soviet Union because, you know, that's where the loyalties lay and so on. And that's a big reason uh, for why they survived, whereas obviously a lot of their families, their parents, uh, in my maternal grandfather's case, I think uh, uh, 11 of his 13 siblings, if I remember right, uh, were killed. Um, and then after the war, they went back to Poland um, to build up the regime. And in a sort of strange historical irony, you know, one of the reasons why I think they were so attracted to communism was the idea that this is a universal ideology. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or whatever. Of course, in reality, that wasn't quite like that. And in the end, uh, sort of uh, in the 60s, the, the regime really turned to a, to a quite pernicious form of anti-Semitism to distract from its own problems. And... Uh, and my grandparents ended up being sort of thrown out by the regime that they themselves had helped to build up. Uh, and so they were in a weird situation. At one point, I think they actually considered coming to the States, but um, my grandfather didn't get a visa in the US precisely because he had been a committed communist rather than <laughs> somebody who was sort of an opportunist, you know. Uh, uh, and so that was sort of out. Um, they considered going to Israel, but in the end, you know, they weren't Zionists and they decided that wasn't for them. Uh, and through sort of various complicated coincidences, my, my mom and my maternal grandfather ended up sort of going to West Germany uh, in the late 60s, early 70s. I have to say that as I was reading the book, I was somewhat shocked that your mother went to Germany. I mean, your grandfather too, but your mother uh, was quite a young woman when she mm -hmm. moved to Germany. And that was only a couple of decades after the Holocaust. It seems to me inconceivable that a Jewish person, even someone who isn't identified particularly right. Jewishly, would opt to move to Germany uh, while the ashes were still burning in some ways. Yeah. In a way, the story of how she ended up in Germany is not atypical for most Jews who ended up in post-war Germany. So a lot of the Jews in post-war Germany weren't sort of originally German Jews or they weren't the sort of well-known intellectuals who went back like Theodor Adorno. Most of them were displaced persons who, uh, you know, had been liberated from the camps but had nowhere really to go. 
a big majority of them ended up leaving for the U.S. or for Israel in, in the late 40s or early 50s. Uh, but some remained and, and they, they called themselves the hanging geblieben, those who sort of got stuck. And for a long time, the idea was, look, we're sort of sitting on, on made suitcases. We're not here forever. And, and the stay grew longer and longer and longer and they ended up staying on. And I think in a way, that's the story of my mother a little bit as well. My mom is a musician. She was a very talented pianist when she was growing up. And, and she moved to Germany basically to go to music university. And, you know, obviously there's a great musical culture in Germany. She had an opportunity there. And I don't think that at that point she thought that she was going to stay on. She would go on a student visa and stay for a number of years. And, you know, then she got more opportunities and she sort of ended up staying on. In the book, you write that as a young child, you pretty much saw yourself as a regular German child like everyone around you. Mm-hmm. What first tipped you off to the possibility that other Germans didn't see you that way? Well, I mean, I think the first time really is, I, I tell the story in the book, uh, one of the first times I was in fifth grade uh, in, in this town called Laupheim, which actually has uh, a long and distinguished Jewish history. Um, but obviously by the time that I was there in the early 90s, all of that was in the past. There was a sort of Jewish cemetery in the center of town, but but that was about it. Um, and so I went to fifth grade at the school there. And on the first day of class, the teacher comes in without much ceremony, sort of says, all right, you know, he looks at the class list. Uh, Alsbach, Lisa, are you Protestant or Catholic? She says, excuse me? And he goes, well, I have to sign you up for a Protestant or Catholic religion classes. So which is it? You know, he says, well, Catholic. And he goes on, you know, Amela Klaus. And he says, uh, uh, Johannes, sorry. And, uh, you know, are you Protestant or Catholic? And he says, Protestant. And, you know, I realize it's soon going to come to me. And I really don't quite know the answer. I mean, you know, I, I sort of know I'm Jewish and... Uh, but I'm not really religious and I don't really want to be singled out, you know. Um, but, you know, it comes to me and he goes, Monk, Yasha. And I say, well, I, I don't know. I, I think I'm sort of Jewish. Uh, and so then the whole class laughed. Um, it's not the reaction I was expecting, but everybody just laughed. And Johannes Emmler from the back sort of shouted, you know, oh, come on, stop making things up. Uh, we all know that Jews don't exist anymore. And so, uh, you know, it was moments like that that made me realize uh, that there was something sort of strange. Uh, about being Jewish. You point out in the book that in the first few decades after the war, Germany managed to make the transition uh, from totalitarianism to democracy without a real full and honest reckoning of the Nazi era. Then in the late 60s, you have the radical movement that led a lot of young people to sort of rebel and question their parents' and grandparents' role in the Holocaust. And a reader might think then that that would lead to a kind of normalization between Jews and hmm. non-Jews in Germany. But that's not really what happened, as you point out in the book. What happened? Yeah, so I think what happens is that there is this generation that takes very, very seriously the need to engage with the past and to deal with the past in a way that some other countries really haven't. I mean, Austria, in some ways, Japan. Um, and that's a really admirable thing. And I think that generation is sort of quite justifiably proud of their achievements. Um but in terms of how that's affected Jews who actually live in Germany, it hasn't been so straightforward, I think. Um, so, you know, basically, there's so few Jews in the country, and a little more now than there were when I was growing up, but there's still very few. Uh, but most Germans will just never have encountered a Jew. And so when you're there and you're saying, by the way, I'm Jewish, you know, all of that sort of historical baggage crashes down in the conversation. Um, and when you're dealing with somebody who's sort of what I call a philosemite, right, somebody who really... Um, has thought about these issues a lot and so on, they sort of feel the urge to apologize or they become embarrassed or they don't quite know what to say. Uh, and so even if they really have the best of intentions and and and, and they've really thought hard about these difficult topics, um, uh, it makes the conversation very awkward and it leads to all kinds of sort of missteps, some of which can be quite funny. 
Uh, so, you know, when I, uh, when I was uh, back in Munich, uh, I went to a party thrown by, by a high school friend of mine. Um, and I walk over to him and he's talking to some girl, uh, Marie. And, uh, and I said, what are you guys talking about? And he's, well, um, uh, Woody Allen, she says, you know, can you believe it? Franz here thinks that Woody Allen is sort of creepy and, you know, a mediocre filmmaker. <laughs> uh, I can believe it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, not an unreasonable opinion. Uh, Franz sort of becomes very, very embarrassed, uh, and says, oh no, um, I didn't, I didn't really say that. No, 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 I didn't, you know. And he says, yeah, of course, you were saying that just a moment ago, right? And he says, no, 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 look, I mean, of course, he's, he's not creepy. I mean, we're both, uh, you know, adults, you know, uh, something odd about him having married, you know, what he thought was his stepdaughter. And, uh, and you know, of course, he's a great filmmaker, you know, I mean, his, his true humor is admirable, you know. Uh, and Marisa sort of looks at me and is like, you know, what's what's going on here? Like, are you, you know, do you, are you writing something about Woody Allen? Are you a huge fan of his? You know, are you related to him? Like, what's going on? Uh, and Francis, well, no, but yes, in a way, Yasha is sort of, you know, related. And Marie looks at me and says, well, you re- you're really related to Woody Allen? Uh, and I say, no, no, I, I guess what Franz means to say is that I'm Jewish. Um, and and she says, oh, how exciting, a real Jew, you know. And, and Franz sort of starts to explain to me how great a movie Deconstructing Harry is or something, you know. <laughs> And, and there's so much goodwill in that conversation. I mean, it's it's sort of you know a tragic comedy, right? Because uh, because there really isn't, a, isn't isn't any reason why we shouldn't all be friends. But but it becomes awkward. And so, you know, whereas back in Laupheim, when I encountered a lot of ignorance and hostility, um, I sort of became quite defiant and and sort of proud to mention that I'm a Jew and sort of you know quite willing to take on whatever reaction would come. Whereas then when I started to experience the sort of philosemitism in Munich, I became a little more guarded about it because um, because it just made things awkward and complicated in a way that just, you know, wasn't very productive. Um, so, no, I don't think things have quite normalized in the philosemitic phase. And then there's sort of a new phase. Um, What's the new phase? Yeah. So I think, you know, some people here in the States still think, well, look, Germans, I'm sure they're still all anti-Semitic deep down. And, and that's not true, Right. And then a lot of people know that there's been this sort of long period of reckoning with the past. And they think, oh, you know, Germany is this wonderful country where, you know, they've really dealt with it and, 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 and everything is sort of simple and straightforward. And that's not quite true either, in part because now there's a sort of backlash against these two earlier phases. Um, so starting in the sort of late 90s and through the 2000s, people were saying, look, why are my parents so obsessed with the past and why are they so awkward about things that are Jewish and, and, and you know, why are we sort of so self-abnegating as, as a nation, you know? It's really time to move on. And so uh, there's what I call the finish line movement. It's called Schlussstrich in, in German. The idea that we need to draw a line underneath the past and sort of finally move on. Enough is enough. And that's become very powerful over the last couple of decades. Uh, it's influenced sort of German politics and society in all kinds of interesting ways. But it's also influenced how sort of German, some Germans will treat Jews now. I, I often now get the feeling that when you mention you're Jewish, people sort of want to demonstrate to you, well, look, I'm not going to treat you differently just because you're a Jew. Because I don't want to be treated differently. <laughs> it would be great if they treated me just the same. Um, but there's a big difference between sort of having figured out a way in which the past doesn't sort of always, in fact, you know, normal interactions today. And sort of wanting to prove that it doesn't. Well, what would an honest reckoning look like in your view? Well, you know, I'm not sure that the problem is even the honest reckoning. I mean, I think there's plenty of people in Germany who have done an honest reckoning. It's just that even once you've done the honest reckoning, 
you know, the past can still cast the shadow that is difficult to, to, to get away from. It's not like I think, you know, you know, Germans should study the Holocaust even more and show even more documentaries about the Third Reich on TV because it's true that all of those things are there. But unfortunately, that just doesn't add up to, and now we can start from scratch. Um, so I think the closest we can get to any kind of solution, and, and I'm not sure there is, you know, a real solution, um, is to just accept that things will remain complicated and that there isn't a moment where you can reset to zero. And I think, you know, insofar as the book speaks to sort of American concerns outside sort of Judaism and the question of sort of German-Jewish relations and so on, you know, that's true of relations between whites and African-Americans as well. I think as long as people think, well, look, now that Obama is in the White House, that's great. You know, we can finally forget about slavery. That's not going to work because that's just not how those kind of historical processes work themselves out. One thing that was very interesting in the book is when you talk about this whole idea of the uh, the finish line and the defiance, you look at how that has played out in German foreign policy right. and in the leadership of Angela Merkel. I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit. How do you see this kind of reaction to the German-Jewish uh, relationship in foreign policy? Yeah, so I think that there's this sort of view that uh, a lot of Germans have about the foreign policy since 1945, which is that uh, they've sort of been so contrite for the past that Germany hasn't been willing to assert itself and to assert its economic and to some degree military might. Uh, and so sort of, you know, they've paid more money to the EU than any other country. They've been sort of nicer to immigrants than any other country. They've accepted entry into the euro, which they didn't want because they loved the Deutschmark, you know, because of the past. And all of that has been a mistake. And now it's time for Germany to finally sort of assert itself again. Um, and that doesn't mean, you know, war expansion or anything like that. But it means sort of we're not going to give money to the Greeks and we're not going to always go with America on everything and foreign policy because, you know, we feel so grateful about what they did for us or anything like that. And I think that story is wrong in important respects. I mean, part of the reason why it's wrong is that the sort of guilt and so on has never played nearly as big a role in German foreign policy as people now commonly think. I mean, Germany had very, very good reasons to stand with America after 45. It was the Cold War. Um, they themselves certainly couldn't have defended themselves against the Soviet Union. Um and the same is true for something like the euro. I mean, Germany had very, very good reasons uh, economically to join the euro. And it certainly has very good reasons now to do whatever it can to avoid, you know, a chaotic breakup of the euro, which would be disastrous for Germany as much for anybody else. Um, the whole debate about the euro in Germany, sadly, now is a weird morality play. It's not what can we do pragmatically to get out of a situation. It's, you know, do we owe the Greeks anything because of a third right? And of course, the answer to that question is no. I mean, of course, Merkel shouldn't pay you know, millions of euros to Greece now because of what Germany did in 1940. But putting the question that way is disastrous because Germany should help Greece and help other countries in the Eurozone because it's in Germany's own interest, actually, and it's certainly in the interest of a larger European project to which many Germans are actually quite committed. How does all this play out in terms of domestic policy? In particular, I'm speaking about uh, immigration and the absorption of immigrants in Germany. Yes, yeah, so I think the finish line movement that I described earlier sort of plays into that as well. Um, people have this idea that Germany has really been sort of overly lenient towards immigrants and allowing them to sort of do whatever they want and to break laws and rules, all of which is mostly untrue. Um, and so that now that we've sort of moved beyond this odd contrition and sort of self-abnegation, we can we can finally lay down the law. And laying down the law means what Angela Merkel calls light culture, so elite culture which is basically to say that to be truly German, you know, immigrants, many of whom are Turkish in Germany, just have to become distinguishable from other Germans. You know, they, they, they shouldn't speak Turkish at home. 
um, you know, they, you know, it's perhaps it's okay they eat a kebab every now and again, but that's about the extent of a cultural difference that's allowed, right? And I think I, I, I think that's you know that's obviously very pernicious. Um, and one of the interesting dynamics that's going on is that some German politicians who are sort of on the right wing populist end are now trying to claim Jews for themselves, in part as a weird rhetorical shield. How do you they're mean? Yeah. So, so they're trying to say, look, um, you know, obviously saying something against foreigners might make me look like I'm a right winger, or perhaps even you know have sympathies to neo Nazis or something like that. That's impossible because look, I love the Jews, right? Um, and so every sort of establishment politician who's gone into the sort of far-right territory has always uh, talked about Germany's Judeo-Christian heritage uh, and so on. And it's and it's a very clever way of sort of dividing uh, Jews from other minorities and, and immigrants in the country. Um, and I think it's very pernicious and I think it's very important that Jews in, in Germany sort of resist that temptation because in my experience, the only way that I could come to feel at home in Germany uh, and that I think many other Jews could really feel like they belong to the country is if Germany changes its understanding of what it means to be a true German. At the moment, being a German still means you come from German stock. I mean, you don't exactly have to be blonde and blue-eyed, but it's sort of close to that, right? Um, and so, yeah, if you look Turkish or, you know, you're Jewish, which somehow makes you oddly different and so on, certainly if you wear a kippah, well, you can't be a real German, right? And the way to overcome that, I think, is to accept something closer to the American idea of what identity means, um, where it's, you know, a self-identification of a country and perhaps having a passport and so on and so forth. Yasha, at the end of the book, you write that given all the experiences you've had in Germany and also in the context of all these debates and policies, you can't imagine yourself ever being at home in Germany. Do you have German friends or acquaintances who have read this book and what reaction have they had to that uh, statement and that feeling? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I think that's that's what makes this book sort of difficult um, for a lot of Germans, which is this feeling that, look, we've done everything we can. You know, what what more do you want? Um, and I think, and I have deep sympathy for that. Um, and of course, I want to emphasize that despite the fact that many, many interactions between Jews and Gentiles are still complicated, there are some that are not. And I have many good German friends with whom none of that is an issue. Um, but but I think for a lot of people in Germany, it'll be hard reading this book um, because if they're sympathetic to, to, to the ideas that I lay out and to my experiences, as I hope they will be, uh, they'll see that it rings true, but, but they'll be sad that things are still so complicated. And I think some people certainly might also have a hostile reaction and say – Look, we've done everything. You're still not happy. You know what is it? You, you, you Jews who are always, you know, a little uh, too combative and you like to complain, and, and and you know, we still haven't done enough. Yeah. So there's another conclusion you reach at the end of the book, which is uh, very salient for tablet listeners, which is now that you live here in the United States and in New York City in particular. You, in some ways, think you can just shed your Jewish identity because there are so many Jews around. It doesn't even matter that you're a Jew. And I guess the question I have then is, after all the uh, suffering that your family has endured, isn't it possibly a little bit premature to throw out your Jewish identity or, or to say, you know, it sort of doesn't matter? Isn't there some more digging that you could do to see if there is an element of Jewish identity that speaks to you? Um yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's definitely possible. I mean, you know, it's difficult to know what the future brings. And, and you know, I, I certainly think about 
being Jewish, I've just written a book about it. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly imaginable that this will become a more important part of my life when I um, published uh, a piece in the New York Times, which is a sort of mini version of the book in a way. Uh, this past weekend, I've had a lot of reactions, including some from, you know, rabbis who've written to me saying, look, if you ever want to explore Jewish religion, you know, uh, I'm here, get in touch, you know, uh, make sure to ring me, you know, if you ever think about marrying a non-Jew, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but at the moment, I think it's right to say that, of course, I'm a Jew in certain ways. I mean, I come from a Jewish family whose history has in, in very deep and obviously tragic ways been uh, been shaped by the fact that there were Jews. And, um, and of course, I would never deny being a Jew, but it's also true that in my daily life, that is not something that's particularly important. And it would be a little facile to say, you know, I love a whitefish bagel and I watch Seinfeld and copy <laughs> enthusiasm and, you know, I have a kind of, you know, Jewish sense of humor. So I'm a Jew, you know, culturally or something. I, I think people who have a serious engage, engagement with Judaism and who know about the tra traditions much more than I do or perhaps who speak Hebrew or have some other sort of serious form of engagement with it get to claim that they're cultural Jews and I have deep respect for that, I think. For me to claim that would actually cheapen that tradition. It, 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 you know, it's it's a sort of false homage, right? Um, so absolutely, you know, I, I don't know what the future brings, but I think when I'm being honest about what my life is right now, uh, being Jewish was certainly a fact about me. It's not something that's sort of particularly important to me. Uh, and, and ironically, one of the things I love about being in New York is that this is a city where I can mention that I'm a Jew, and it doesn't define me. In Germany, that was difficult, right? As soon as you mention that you're Jewish, it becomes this huge fact that will always define you to some degree. Um, and here I never deny that I'm a Jew. I never sort of try to weasel my way out of mentioning it. Of course, I'm a Jew, and I can say that to somebody. I'm like, all right, you're a Jew. And the next day, you know, they've more or less forgotten it. It doesn't matter. You're Yasha, you're, you know, whether you're a nice guy, whether you're funny, what, what you're doing in life, you know, and that's what matters. And I think being in a city where, where that's the case is something that I found incredibly liberating and which is part of the reason why I love being here. Yasha Monk, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Yasha Monk is pursuing a PhD in political thought at Harvard. His new book is called A Stranger in My Own Country, A Jewish Family in Modern Germany. It's just out from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. We would, as ever, love to hear your thoughts on our podcast today, so go ahead, send us an email at podcast at tabletmag.com or simply post a comment on our website, tabletmag.com. Our podcast is Vox Tablet. It's produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. We thank you so much for joining us, and we hope you'll join us again next time.